So it's good to be here again. It's already the end of October. And daylight savings time is staying an extra week this year. Into November. So this will give us the illusion of being more in the light. <laughs> of course, daylight savings time is simply a convention and we will forget, perhaps because we wake up late, that there is also darkness in the morning. So it reminds me of a story from the great Taoist philosopher Chuang Tzu, in which there were a group of monkeys who, if I remember the story rightly, um, were um, discontented because of their feeding schedule, they were getting four peanuts in the morning and three in the afternoon. And Chuang Tzu switched it to three in the morning and four in the afternoon, and they became very happy. I won't, I won't give a commentary on that, but it may be partly related to daylight savings time and our, our ways of mind. And perhaps this is related to the theme I want to continue with today is this theme of getting down to more direct experience, of connecting with more direct experience, which I've explored the last two times. And I think as most of you know, the talks on Wednesday mornings are recorded. They're available on the website Dharma Seed to be heard and, if you wish, downloaded. And they typically go up quite quickly, within 24 hours usually. Uh, uh, they go up on the website. So to remind us of that theme and then to say a little bit of how I want to explore it further today, <coughs> the basic point is a teaching about the nature of confusion or ignorance or delusion. And it's pointing to how we in much of our experience, are not very aware of what is happening in a more direct way to us on the level of emotions, thoughts, bodily experiences, but tend to spend a good deal of our human existence in the realm of ideas, concepts, memories, assumptions, stories, uh, ideologies, and so forth. And we often um, are not very connected with direct experience. Those concepts, stories, ideologies are a necessary part of human experience, but the core teaching here is that we are uh, often far removed from direct experience, caught in repetitive cycles of concepts, stories, and thoughts that are disconnected from experience, and that this is a fundamental mechanism of ignorance that's linked with suffering. I'll unpack that, but that's the basic idea. And that we can see this uh, personally, we can see this interpersonally, we can see this in terms of societies and in terms of uh, collective units of human organization, that so much of human life is actually disconnected from the most basic level of human experience. 
the claim that is particularly given in the classical teachings is that this process of being removed from direct experience is connected with suffering and that it's driven to a significant extent by what we might call reactivity. In other words, because of kind of compulsive or chronic aversion and grasping, we go away from experience. One of the main reasons we do it when there's aversion is that we don't like what's happening in experience. We go away from unpleasant experiences and we don't want to be with them. So individuals do this. We don't want to be with difficult experiences and so we tell stories to ourselves, often blaming ourselves, blaming others. Societies don't want to look at their difficult material and so as a society we don't want to pay attention to the legacy of racism or to the legacy of uh, uh, near Native American genocide. It goes into what we might call the shadow area and whole edifices of behavior and reactions are built upon this moving away from direct experience. It's a powerful and simple theme and also very connected with our core practice which is really to go back closer to direct experience. Our core practice of mindfulness done with compassion and care is a practice by which we come closer, more and more close to our emotions, our um, bodily experiences, we notice our thoughts, we notice how there can be proliferation of thoughts and stories when certain experiences occur. So we study that process. We learn how to be closer to experience. In doing so, we open up often to what's beneath the surface. So the claim here is that this is a fundamental mechanism by which ignorance occurs in human life. I think animals do their own version of this. And we, we don't give so much focus to teaching animals right now, but maybe in the future there will be more, more coming on, I mean, non-human animals, just to be clear. We, we are animals, not to give you inflation about our status. So um, that this is a core mechanism of ignorance or delusion, and that this is a very direct way to say what does delusion or confusion or ignorance mean, to really unpack it in terms of this understanding. And so what I want to do today is to return briefly to what we've covered before, but add some further dimensions. And I want to talk about this. This is really uh, an unpacking of the meaning of confusion or ignorance or delusion. And I want to uh, go further than I went before by talking about three levels increasingly subtle of confusion or ignorance. The first is this way that we go far removed from direct experience. The second is the way that often some of that enters into territory we might call unconscious or that some of our confusion or ignorance is based on actually what, what is not immediately accessible to us, what in Western psychology we call the unconscious. So that's a second, more subtle and less accessible dimension of our ignorance. So I'm going to talk about these three aspects of our confusion or ignorance. The f less and less uh, accessible, more subtle. But they're all, but they give a map, uh, I think, of the fullness of our practice. 
the aim of our practice is actually to work through increasingly all three of these dimensions. So the first is the way that we get far removed from experience. The second is sort of the way that that can manifest in terms of unconscious material. And the third has to do with some of our basic ignorance and confusion about experience and reality as such, which is a a little more subtle. It's really a kind of confusion about the very nature of human experience. That is, we might say, a more of an existential ignorance that's quite common and takes, again, as maybe a little more subtle. These all take, requires, for most of us, um, different kinds of practices in order to uh, work through them. But that the path of awakening that's being suggested here can cover all three of them. It can cover the way that we get far removed from experience, the way that we have unconscious material, secondly, and the way that we have certain kinds of almost existential ignorance that are uh, near universal for human beings, but that are possible to transform. The teachings point to all three of these dimensions, and they are actually quite connected. We could think of actually all three of them uh, in terms of this model of moving away from direct experience. So I thought I'd just read a few passages that really point in both um, uh, traditional Buddhist understandings as well as in some Western models to this core role of ignorance because it's actually, pointing to ignorance is actually optimistic. It may feel, oh my gosh, ignorance, you know, or you might, I mean, I immediately started thinking of the famous press conference with Donald Rumsfeld about 2003 or four, when he was talking about Iraq and he was talking about the fact that sometimes we can't really know what we don't know. He was referring to Iraq and intelligence and I think he was out of a job within a short, fairly short time. <laughs> but um, that was the press conference where, where he said, there are known knowns and there are known unknowns and there are also unknown unknowns. <laughs> but it, it points, I mean, there's some, something to it. I think, I think he left out one of the four logical possibilities, which was quite critical, actually, but that's another issue. Um, and, but it's basically, how can we know what we don't know? You know how can we know what's unconscious? So, uh, that's where we have a community is very helpful. <laughs> Your friends will be very happy to tell you what you don't know. <laughs> or or where, where you were unconscious, and they will do so without charging a fee. Uh, you can also go to people who will charge a fee to tell you what you don't know. <laughs> so, um, here's from a 5th century text of a Sudhimaga. Delusion has the characteristic of blindness, of not penetrating reality, of covering the true nature of experience. That's what we're talking about. Delusion has the characteristic of blindness, of not penetrating reality, of covering the true nature of experience. So what we're looking here, one of the models or metaphors we could use is a covering. I'll use a few other metaphors for the nature of ignorance. 
Here is from, from the teachings of the Buddha. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya uh, 45.1, if anyone wants to look that up. Um, practitioners, ignorance is the forerunner in the entry upon unwholesome states with shamelessness and fearlessness of wrongdoing following along. For an unwise person immersed in ignorance, wrong view springs up. For one of wrong view, wrong intention springs up. For one of wrong intention, wrong speech springs up. For one of wrong speech, wrong action springs up, and so forth. And then says that true knowledge is the forerunner in the entry upon wholesome states, or we might say skillful states, or states that are linked with um, clarity. From the Tibetan tradition, Kala Rinpoche, a well-known quotation, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing, and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Another Tibetan teacher, well-known teacher name uh, from the 20th century, named Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, he, taught, he says that, um, this is from a little different viewpoint, he says, um, the only difference between Buddhas and the rest of us is that we, uh, we don't know ourselves. <laughs> and Buddhas know themselves. But there's no fundamental difference of quality or of nature. Buddhas and the rest of us are not fundamentally different, except they have, they know their nature and we don't. So it's again pointing to the issue is not some kind of uh, existential difference between me and Buddha. It's more to do with ignorance. Again, I think you could take that as quite optimistic. It means that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with us that can't be changed, which is exceedingly positive news and goes against quite a bit of our belief system and a lot of, I think, a lot of Western models as well, where we might somehow have original sin or be uh, you know, somehow flawed without redemption possible, something like that. And there's the famous Western model of Plato. You know the image of the cave. Uh, again, well-known model from the Plato's Republic where uh, his model of human reality is that we all are sitting with our backs to a fire, looking at the wall where shadows from the fire are being projected. That there behind us, there's a fire and then a bunch of people walking between the fire and us, casting shadows on the wall we look at the shadows and think that they're real. Mm -hmm. very, that was from 2,500 years ago, very similar to television. You know, we're looking at shadows and thinking that it's real in some way. Um, I could make that connection. So the in, same, same model for Plato, ignorance is the problem. It's possible to turn around because we're actually, he said, we are in chains and we can't typically look around, see the fire. He said the job of our spiritual practice is to turn around, be able to see the mechanism of projection and the mechanisms of ignorance, turn around and then eventually walk out of the cave into the bright light and see things as they are. So again, very similar models. I gave uh, another image 
um, in the last two times, which is in the handout called The Ladder of Inference, by, developed by Chris Argris at Harvard Business School, which from the organizational development literature, which gives another model, which is that we, which, which to me is a helpful image for us to look at in our experience, which is this image that we have in our raw experience, kind of unlimited possible data. We can look here, we can look there, we could tune into any of the senses, and at any moment we have all this unlimited experience. You know, that we, that we, in actuality, we don't open up to all of that. You know, um, and it's actually, you know, sometimes actually when people take drugs, that, that's what happens. You open up to the, the rawness of experience without selecting out what's happening, and it can feel confusing or it can feel exhilarating or whatever, but there's some of the selective mechanisms in our, of our usual cognitive processes are not there. And so we have this, this kind of endless experience possible right now. You know, we could go all sorts of places, but we're choosing to select out certain information. You're, you know, you're listening to me for the most part, and we're, um, you know, maybe other things come to the mind. We're attending in a certain way, and that's our usual manner. We attend to certain things. We select certain data out, out of the almost infinite uh, possible range of, of data. And then we uh, often, not always, we often then on the basis of this data we select out, we find meaning. You know, you may say, um, you know, that point was very helpful, I like that point, or this was a good talk, or this was an uh, okay talk, or this, you know, we're talking with someone else. And we may form meanings, and then we may uh, go what's called going up the ladder to make assumptions, draw conclusions, have beliefs, you know. And this, this is a, uh, a helpful model. This is ordinary human experience, but what's important is that, <clears throat> and what really is uh, added by the traditional teachings around mindfulness, is that we're often almost uh, compulsively go up the ladder to get away from direct experience, particularly when it's uh, we either something's unpleasant or that we want to grab hold of something, and that we actually spend rather little time with direct experience. So I'm using this um, model to kind of give us a visual image of what we might do. And we're talking about going up the ladder. And the question is, how to go up the ladder wisely? Because we do need to go up the ladder to the level of beliefs and assumptions and conclusions and thoughts and concepts. So those are not the enemy, but we often are caught in them and we do not spend time in direct experience. And we often use concepts to get away from direct experience. You know, we have the, the, the concept of papancha in the Buddhist tradition of a kind of, on the basis of perception, a, um, a kind of conceptual proliferation. That's the translation of papancha occurs. You know, I notice, you know, I, you may sit here, you may notice someone else's um, clothing, and you may think, that's really nice. And you're listening to the talk, and you suddenly notice someone's clothing, and says, that's really nice. I wonder where that person got it. Oh, I could use another outfit. But, um, gosh, I wonder how much it costs. I, I should talk to that person afterwards. No, no, I have to do something right afterwards. Maybe I can call up my friend right afterwards, and say I'll come 15 minutes late so I can talk to this person about where she got this outfit. And no, that's not going to work. 
And so five minutes goes by, ten minutes goes by, and you miss me talking about papancha. (laughs) (laughs) Caught in papancha. So, um, is that familiar? Has anyone experienced, not experienced that in the last short period of time? (laughs) So, um, and again, that's often uh, what what is really uh, the hallmark of what's problematic about that is that it's driven by reactivity, often. Sometimes we can go up the ladder skillfully. And I was thinking next week, actually, of focusing on what is a skillful way to go up the ladder? How do we use concepts, views, assumptions skillfully? I was thinking about that as a topic for next week that would kind of build on where we've gone, because that's kind of the open question, okay? If those aren't the enemy, well, how do we use them skillfully? How do we use thinking skillfully? Sometimes we get the sense in Buddha's practice, thinking is the enemy, right? Got to get rid of thinking, bad thinking, get rid of it. But not really the case. In fact, of course, the whole talk is on the level of thinking. And a lot of the expression of wisdom, even if it's pointing to more direct experience, is at the level of thinking. So we want to, we definitely want to use thinking carefully, but we're often confused about how to do it. And we get caught up in repetitive thinking, in the, in the papancha, and so forth. So, <clears throat> you know, we can see that going up the ladder in a way that's not helpful. One of the clearest places we can see that is with conflicts. We can see how when I get in a conflict with someone, I may instantly focus on a story. <clears throat> I may be selective in my choosing of data so that my, I keep on repeating something negative about the person I'm with, right? And I don't, and I actually get locked into the meaning or the narrative, that's bad, or that was bad. And I may generalize to, I might start psychologizing the person. And when I'm in a conflict, often I go way up the ladder and I stay there. It's quite evident, you know, in fact, <clears throat> what? I may, I may stay, I may stay up there, in fact, the, you know, I assess, especially work with this model in teaching about conflict. And you, I don't know if we, I did that, I taught about conflict here maybe three years ago for several weeks. And I, I don't know if I used that, but we use it often, I don't think I did, but we use it often in the teaching on conflict because the work is to come down the ladder. The role of a peacemaker often is to take people away from hardened positions, locked in ideologies, and if you look to people in stress or in conflict, you can use this model and you can see how people go way up the ladder and they typically stay there. And it's almost impossible to resolve a conflict when you have, let's say, two parties way up the ladder. One has to bring them down. One has to bring it down to more direct experience, typically, which is about something painful, something difficult. And one has to find ways, and this is where compassion would come in, when people are way up the ladder, it can be locked in without compassion. And, you know, you can just, well, we can watch our minds when we're in a difficult interaction just with even someone close to us and watch how our minds go up the ladder. That's going to be, that's a particular part of practice is to really attend to that, that reactivity, you know. And again, very endemic in <clears throat> areas that tend to be conflictual, such as politics. You look at politics Everyone is way up the ladder. And I mentioned how often not really attending even to basic data or information. 
just into positions, ideologies, <coughs> and the, the, um, that whole realm is often just ruled by being way up the ladder and it's, um, it makes solving problems almost impossible. Because you know, the problems are there by really coming down the ladder to what's happening to the experience. And so what tools do we use to work? This is that, this first level that I've focused on the last two times. We come down the ladder, our core practice of mindfulness helps us to come down the ladder to be with our bodies, to be with our emotions, to notice the thoughts, to notice the tendencies to proliferation. And last time I gave a number of different ways that we can practice we can really track our thoughts. To do this practice, we have to be really familiar with how our own thoughts proliferate. What are my patterns where I, in a given situation where I go into my typical story? We have to know what the typical stories are. You know, in my close relationship you know, with my partner or with someone in my family, I will typically have a number of typical stories which support me for going up the ladder and not dealing with reality. And maybe just one major one. <laughs> you know, it could be, you know. And, and these maybe have a connection with reality, but when we stay immersed in the story and don't go down to direct experience, it's very hard to work with it. You know, if you tell someone, well, you're always doing this, that will tend not to be effective <laughs> as a way of dealing with problems unless it's a very authoritarian relationship in which you can kind of command someone to do it, but that's in the long run won't be effective either. Um, so we use mindfulness. We track the thoughts. We track the stories. This is a huge part of our practice, just noticing the thoughts, having mindfulness come in so that our process of thinking is not quite so automatic. We track thoughts. Very crucial also to track emotions, to be able to stay with emotions. Watch how emotions will proliferate into thoughts into, and go up the ladder with emotions. I have anger towards something that happened. We can watch right there in the sitting how the thoughts proliferate based on anger you know, and how we, they harden sometimes. And so our practice is to keep staying at that lower level. We can especially notice the feeling tone of something being pleasant or unpleasant. It's so key because pleasant feelings tend to evoke grasping, which will tend to evoke stories, and we often don't notice the pleasant experience. So if we can actually track pleasant experiences or unpleasant experiences as close to their start as possible, we can um, both prevent proliferation and also tend to notice how the proliferation occurs. This is not easy. It's not easy in the protection of a meditation session. It's even harder in daily life because things are happening quickly. <coughs> We're reacting automatically. So this is why all of this does require training. We really need to give attention to this. If we're interested in working through this, it takes time and energy you know, and, and support from others. And especially being attentive for moments in which I'm reactive, in which I am sort of not liking this in a strong way or really liking this and watching how that causes proliferation. That becomes right at the center of our practice. Now, that's the, what I'm calling the first layer of confusion or ignorance and the most 
in a way, the most accessible. We can, when we track thoughts like that, we can often notice that. We can bring attention to more basic experience. The second and third layers of confusion are more subtle. And that's, I didn't talk about that the last two times. I want to go into that now because it's quite important. And it's helpful to have this sense of these different levels of ignorance, different levels of confusion, which are really different levels of our practice. The model of the latter can be helpful for all three of them because ultimately we want to go to more direct experience. <clears throat> now, for individuals, and I think for relationships and for society, sometimes we, have, we go up the ladder because, especially because of something painful. And we're almost driven up the ladder because it's so painful. And we cease to have access to the original experience, where it's very hard to access. It becomes <clears throat> part of the unconscious. So for example, I may, as a, um, a child, be essentially conditioned by my parents not to express anger. Okay, it's an example I, gi I, I give sometimes. I may be conditioned not to experience anger as a three-year-old or a four-year-old. And I may internalize that because I'm giving the message, if you want love, don't be angry. <laughs> right? And few children would go, would try to stay angry. And so what happens is, is the kind of inner fragmentation occurs. And the child learns to suppress anger even before it occurs. The child will also tend to be very judgmental, we would expect, towards himself or herself if anger arises, right? And would almost like have all these go way up the ladder judging oneself. I was so bad, I was angry. And would do the same towards others. And so what starts to happen is that the presence of anger starts to go into what we in Western psychology would call the unconscious, becomes inaccessible. And the person doesn't have access to that direct experience. Um, and we could, that same thing could happen with all sorts of areas of our lives, particularly ones where there was some difficulty, where there was some fragmentation, where there's some kind of abuse that would happen. Some part of our experience would become inaccessible. That's what we call the unconscious, or sometimes we call it the shadow. Material goes into the shadow because at a certain age we can't deal with it or we don't deal with it. And it, it's, it's um, a painful experience. And so we form defense mechanisms so that we don't have to experience or that we don't even get close to it. That becomes part of the, mech part of the material, we might say, of going up the ladder. And in terms of that area, we stay perpetually up the ladder because it was too painful to deal with. And so, you know, if we ha and societies do the same thing. I mentioned something like the trauma of slavery or what happened to the Native Americans. That becomes something which is, even though we kind of know about it, the society doesn't want to deal with it. It almost becomes part of what we could call the collective unconscious. And, and, our, and our, you know, we don't want to deal with what's painful as a society, and we spend our time up the ladder. Now what's powerful about that is that even though we don't want to deal with it, what we don't want to deal with is still driving us. 
and it's still causing a lot of suffering. You know, that, that repression of anger is still driving my behavior whenever a situation occurs that I might get angry about or I see someone else's anger. The repression of attention to what happened with, let's say, collective trauma still drives our behavior to a large, very large extent. Think, you know, the not wanting to deal with the legacy of slavery and racism is like the, almost like the unspoken core wound of this society, and we don't deal with it. It still is incredibly present, but it's kind of somewhat beneath the surface. Of course, for some people, it's not unconscious, right? For some people, this is not unconscious. So that can give you a sense. So if this starts to get less accessible, right? The unconscious material is less accessible, but what it's still part of what we mean by um, the un, by ignorance or confusion. And how do we, you know, how do we work with that? We have uh, different mechanisms to work with that, or different tools. Mindfulness itself can open us up. Our practice itself can open us up to that, uh, to those unconscious layers. Meditation especially when we do more intensive meditation and retreats, can open us up to personal unconscious material as well, I think, as to collective unconscious material to the extent that it comes through us. You know? um, so, for example, I've talked at, at times about my anger retreat. Now, it just so happens that I was not encouraged to express anger. So, some of the examples just given are not entirely theoretical. <laughs> and, and so I think for me, you know, and I think it's very, a lot of it's partly personal, partly just being raised a man when I was, right? You know, and you know, I, I remember, you know, in my late teens and 20s, many people would say, what do you feel? And I would give a thought. And you may, some of you may still work with that in your intimate relationships with that dynamic. <laughs> uh, and it took, it took learning, you know, and I, there was a, you know, and so gradually opening to anger. And then I had, you know, in meditation, I had this retreat, which I talked about at length in the, the book that I did called The Engaged Spiritual Life, where I had a whole chapter on anger. <laughs> and I talked about having a 10-day retreat where I was angry for 18 hours a day for 10 days. And here I am, I've lived through that and came back. But but it was um, meditation opened up to that, again, with some skillful guidance. I, you know, I was working with Jack Kornfield at the time. He was quite skillful with that, partly being trained as a psychologist, and was able to be with that anger and go into a lot of material that in some ways was unconscious. We can do that in meditation. Obviously, we can do it with psycho- certain kinds of psychological work. People can work through trauma. You know, the Bay Area is a center for, for connecting uh, that kind of work, uh, psychological work with spiritual practice, is a center for working with traumatic material as well. So one can do all kinds of work which bring that material into consciousness. It's harder on a collective level. There has to, it's not, you know, some societies have had a commitment to doing that, like South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a way of doing, we might say, collective shadow work and going into the unconscious as a collective, to some extent. Not in a full way, but more, I think, than almost any society in history, which is saying a lot. You know, so it's possible to do that. We, you know, it'd be great to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission 
for the United States. It's not on the current agenda. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm serious about that. I think, you know, and it can be maybe the model, I think this model what we're looking at is not just about personal practice. I think it's also about relationships. It's about communities. It's about the larger society. Ignorance is uh, not just personal. So we can, do, we can do these kinds of work to work with that second level of ignorance. And then the third level, uh, and I'm being brief on these second two levels, the third level is this dimension by which uh, we don't see the core nature of reality clearly. This is, again, an emphasis pointed to in many spiritual traditions, that there's something that we're missing. In the teachings of the Buddha, it was pointed out especially that we don't see clearly the nature of impermanence. We don't see clearly the uh, dynamics of suffering. We don't see clearly the uh, nature of our own individual being. So there, that there's certain illusions there that we, for we tend to think that things are permanent. We tend to think that I'm permanent and that objects are permanent, partly language is a, a factor here. You know, that with our concepts, we tend to think that there's really an object there. <laughs> that with our language, we think, oh, there's a tree, there's a bench, there's a book, and so forth. And our language and concepts tend to make us think that things almost are more real than they really are. When we do meditative experience, we can tune in to the flow of impermanence. We, we quiet the mind. Concepts aren't as active by any means, and sometimes they're quite silent. And we can tune in to a level of experience which is not dominated by concepts. And we can actually be with the tree in a more direct way. I think this is also something that's been explored a lot in art. So a lot of the Expressionist painters, for, for example, like Cezanne or Van Gogh, they talked very consciously of looking at the mechanisms of perception and getting to more direct experience away from the usual stories. And they were criticized for that. You know, they were criticized. Oh, we have these classical models of what a painting should be. And they wanted to go to more direct experience, very parallel to what we're talking about here. And you can see how those paintings would sometimes break apart the usual solidity of an object. Would have, they would just be all these uh, splotches, right? Splotches of color, which would give something like the same experience, but they were basically saying, let me go to more direct experience, much like we do in meditation. It's quite interesting. You might look at that artwork with different eyes. It's very similar to what we do in meditation. They were, they were saying, let's move away from the tyranny of our concepts and go to more direct experience. Again, not that concepts are bad, but when we take them to be real, when we think, oh, there's really a tree solid object here, and we, we move away from direct experience. Let's get into subtleties, which we can maybe bring out or look at later. But so impermanence is one aspect. Another aspect is that we don't see the basic mechanisms by which suffering occurs, particularly how we are reactive and grasp hold of what we think is pleasant and push away what is unpleasant. That we think that happiness comes 
from possessing certain experiences or certain things, rather than, as is the teaching, that happiness comes from a core resting in our basic nature without any grasping. That's the fundamental teaching, and that this tendency to grasp, to push away, which is very conditioned, prevents us from really seeing more who we most deeply are. We might say our beautiful, luminous, wise, loving nature. We get glimpses of that, but the the conditioned tendencies make us unable to really rest fully in that because we're always saying, what's in it for me or what should I do? And that points to the third aspect that's, that's, that's indicated, which is the way we get fixated around a sense of self. You know? And there's a lot of confusion about this teaching. I'm thinking maybe sometime in the near future to give a series of talks on self and not self. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the most confusing areas. It's like, it's like there, there's a lot of humor about it. I, I have a whole list of basically Jewish Buddhist jokes about it. Like, you know, if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? <laughs> You know, so anyway, I have to hold everything with some humor, human condition, and so forth, all of this. But, but uh, that's the third area that's pointed to as, as an existential dimension of ignorance. We, don't, we get really confused about self, not self. And the pointing is towards uh, the sense of a separate, rigid self apart from everything which we have in certain ways, and it's understandable, sometimes we think we need that to survive, is actually not the, the, the deepest level of understanding. It's not really the, what we see when we go to more direct experience. And so practicing on this third level can, ta- can be done by following the mindfulness, by following our usual practice, and just having it be yet deeper, yet more thorough. And that opens us up to work through that third level of, um, of ignorance. Ultimately, the three levels are connected, this, this way that we go up the ladder in more ordinary experience, in ways that we can access, ways that we, as it were, live up the ladder because of unconscious material, the second area, and then the way that we live up the ladder to a large extent because of almost deep, existential conditioning about being a human being. The practice ultimately is there to transform all three of those aspects of ignorance, to bring us into touch more deeply with who we are. And there are tools in all three of those areas. Our basic mindfulness practice, taken far enough and with maybe with some additional tools, can go there. It can open us up in that way. But that they all, in a way, to use the metaphor of the ladder, all the forms of ignorance are up the ladder. What we want to do is go down the ladder to more direct experience. And we can do that in all of these different ways. And so for you know, immediate practice, I would just suggest staying with one or two of these, just staying with the mindfulness practice, but really keeping on having that Guidance. Let me go down the ladder. Let me go to more direct experience. Let me see what causes me to go up. Not to blame myself for going up. Let me see what goes up. Why I go up. What are my own patterns? 
How do I see others go up? And as I've said the last few times, to hold all this with compassion, because we all go up the ladder, we are all confused, (laughs) we all suffer. (laughs) And sometimes when we look around with the eyes from, I've mentioned myself having this experience, I look around with the eyes, we might say Dharma eyes, guided by this model, and you see, oh my gosh, they're going up the ladder. Oh, going up the ladder, oh my gosh, television, look at that. It's perpetually, you know, look at, oh, Congress, oh oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, there's someone in Congress saying, let's go down the ladder, oh yes, very good. (laughs) You know, so it can be, it can be a lot to take in. I just want to say that, it feels that way. You have these eyes and you can look around you and say, oh my, you know, as my sister says sometimes, oh my God, and it's a lot. Uh, oh my God, it's not a Buddhist phrase, but, <laughs> but, but the sentiment is there. Right. So, so we need compassion and we need, we need that persistence in practice, but this is all very, very workable. But it's kind of a radical, I'll close just by saying, to me this is a simple, radical, accessible pointing out of the nature of ignorance that makes it um, appear workable. Yeah. So we, we can keep, the, keep it on for the questions, it's okay. Let's just um, take a moment to sit. Any reflections or questions, comments? Um, please, and then. Oh, well, why, why don't we also say our names just so we I continue? Can. Yeah. Yeah, 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 this, how the stories can be addictive, they give us some energy. I mean, just think of the, like a very simple example of something difficult happens with someone I'm working with. And, uh, you know, again, depending on our background and skills and training and tools, uh, we may do different things. But one more, what, um, typical kind of conditioning would just be to go to blaming and telling a story about this person, which cannot, can meet an obvious sort of uh, psychological need and can actually be very satisfying. You know, you know, when, uh, you know, when you think of the judgmental mind, you know, or, you know, and just the way that when something difficult happens, 
and I go right to a judgment, which in, let's say in one example has the basic story, this person is bad and I'm good. There might be adrenaline from that. <laughs> there certainly is a certain, you know, it's, it's a fixed story. Kind of closes the book on reality, right? No more need for investigation on that one. <laughs> right? It's, okay, that's, you know, that's all. It, it's, it's very convenient. Uh, the problem of meaning and action is resolved. You know? The meaning is clear. The action is clear. That person should get it together. I don't need to do anything. Right? And so it becomes very convenient and can be, um, you know, and to the extent that it might be driven by anger, there can be a lot of energy in the body, right? So there is something, you know, if we would look in more detail at those kind of mechanisms, there's a lot in the physiology. It's also, we could actually unpack it in terms of what happens at the level of the brain. You know, there's certain, we're ba- there are certain uh, neural pathways, you know, the, you know the, all of what I talked about in terms of the unconscious or going up the ladder, is all we could also talk about in terms of neural pathways. Uh, it helps make it clear why it's sometimes so automatic because certain neural pathways get used over and over again. And so a certain stimulus happens and it just leads at the level of the brain to going on this route, you know, that I've maybe, they're well-traveled neural pathways, which could be, you know, that work situation. So there's, it's occurring at a lot of levels. Um, please, and then in the back, right okay. up. Yeah. Barbara, if I understand you correctly, that you really should be, we almost automatically run up the ladder. Mm -hmm. That we just have to keep training ourselves to run down the ladder and go back to the bottom and Mm -hmm. then you find yourself up there and then you're, it's just like, um, in good physical training on some level. I mean, this is how I, what I was No, it's a nice, it's a nice, yeah. Thing that you're, whoops, here I am, enjoying all these, little, I gotta go down and see what really happened, what I'm really That's right, it's really. a nice and way so to say it. running down. Yeah. And so it's like a commitment to being in good, what, I don't know the word mental isn't the right word, but a commitment or intention to being in good shape yeah. to run, back down this ladder all the time. Yeah, that's an interesting way to see it, that we're being asked to have our, our ladder walking legs in good shape. Right. To, to, um, but, but you're right, yeah, we, we... Now, again, the key factor that we want to look at is reactivity. Well, that's what shoots you up the ladder. That's what shoots you, but sometimes, you know, clearly, let's say for, you know, if I was, um, I don't know, developing a, uh, let's say I'm an engineer and I'm developing a project, I'm going to want to do a lot of planning, make a lot of assumptions, that work's going to be up the ladder, but hopefully not very reactive. You know, what's, we clearly go up the ladder for certain of our human functions, mm-hmm. right? And, and yet for what's being pointed to is that um, it's the more conditioned going up the ladder, especially because of reactivity, that's linked with suffering, with tremendous suffering. Knee-jerk. Knee-jerk, knee, knee yeah, we're using different metaphors here. Knee-jerk up the ladder. <laughs> and that, yeah, and we have to continually, this is, I mean, it's pretty, this is another metaphor for what we ordinarily do uh, in our mindfulness practice, beginning instructions. You notice you're off thinking about something, come back to your breath. It's a training to keep coming down the ladder. Mindfulness, you know, hopefully in our practice before the talk, 
we all did this. We all were practicing, staying in a more direct level of experience. You notice you're away from it, you come back down. And so, yeah, we do the same, can do the same thing in everyday life. You're at a meeting, you notice you're daydreaming, you come back down and listen to the, what's being said in the meeting, or you're with another person, you're preparing what you'll say next. You say, okay, let me listen to the persons. It's as simple as that. That's not, you know, there, there, are subtle, there are a lot of quite subtle dimensions to what I presented today. Some of it's not that subtle. It's just very simple and direct. Yeah. Thanks. Good question. Please, and then, and then next yeah, to you. I'm not even quite sure how to ask this. I know you spoke about neural pathways. I'm aware of like in Mago work where it'll talk about, you know, historical relatedness, wounding, whatever, yeah. and then current reality. So I might be in current reality, but the neural pathway is so intense right. that the, the, the zets, the feels much, you know, stronger. And I can't necessarily distinguish always between what's in front of me That's and right. what's historical. So I'm asking, is, could you have any suggestions? And how soften when I realize that my response is out of proportion to the yeah. current reality in front of my face? Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for how to soften yeah. that response reaction? And I, I know practice. Yeah, and and your name again? I'm sorry, I'm I'm Keisha. Keisha, yeah, thank you. It's a great it's a great question, Keisha. That um, a lot of the times, because of past conditioning, and this can be at the level of individual, a relationship, or a whole society, that we, because of what's happened in the past, we are, as it were, seeing present reality through a lens, and maybe actually <clears throat> not even seeing. It, but actually not even being able to use the lens, but being locked into, you know, into neural pathways, um, so that we actually have a very hard time even experiencing the present moment. If you know, if someone, you know, if I have conditioning, I, example, I think I gave last time, I have conditioning around when I was a kid. Uh, maybe my parents weren't there in the ways that I would have wanted. I've had some abandonment issues. And then I'm with a partner who wants to go away for the weekend. And I start getting, getting into almost the neural pathways that were there when I was six, six years old or eight years old with my partner. And I'm on a neural level, that's where I'm at. Right? And it's very hard even to see or hear what the person's saying or to have a different response. So how to work with that in the present moment. In the, in the long run, some of those long-held patterns need to be maybe worked with individually and a lot of different ways. Mindfulness, you know, the, the basic tool in all of these methods is to somehow go back to the original painful and even traumatic experiences and be there basically with loving attention, with caring attention, often with the support of other people, and to work through that and then work out a different way of responding when the same stimuli come. That's the core method. One can do that with mindfulness practice, one can do that in psychotherapy or in other kinds of work. So how to do that? I think, you know, the simply having the mindfulness that this is happening is a key starting point. Just to say, look, I feel like I'm getting locked into that again. Let me just notice that. Because that starts to then make it possible for me to have a response rather than a reaction. Um, helpful to have compassion. 
And sometimes there might be a way that, you know, th this would depend on the situation, but there might be a way that I can come to a neutral place where I'm no longer in that neural pathway. When I work with people around the judgmental mind, for example, and people are caught in it, sometimes it's wise to apply an antidote which takes you out of the old pattern. Sometimes the old pattern is too strong if you stay in it and you have to go somewhere else. So sometimes that's wise, just to say, I'm caught there, let me go to something else. So, you know, sometimes it could be to go to metta, or it could be to take a walk, or something like that. So sometimes it's very hard to be present and to actually switch it. Sometimes with enough training and enough seeing of it, we can actually shift the awareness. Sometimes it's wise just to stay with it and study it. So it really depends. Maybe the last, last question, and then we're, we're you know, we're coming. So, so my yeah. name is Rabbi Jack. Yeah. So um, I come from a different, uh, a different tradition. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm listening to this, and, I, and, I, and I, it's a very sweet kind of a framework that you set yeah. here, which is a kind of psycho-spiritual framework really, yeah. of the mind and, and the spirit. And um, so in my tradition, um, which is mystical Judaism, uh, there's not so much emphasis on this meditation. There's more of an emphasis on contemplation. Yeah. So I wonder if there's overlap in in, uh, in what you're presenting between contemplation and meditation. So let me, do you want me to explain what that is? Or Maybe you just yeah, we're near. We, our time is a little tight. So if you could give a one sentence explanation of what you mean by contemplation. So um, contemplation is rather than staying with your breath and uh, letting go of what you said of. Uh, uh, and being present to experience, it's more like having something in mind and going towards it uh, for the sake of understanding and action. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, a few thoughts. So one one of them is is that uh, our use of the word meditation in English is a very bad translation from the Asian traditions. And it really doesn't convey a lot. It actually comes more from, uh, to my knowledge, from Christian medieval uh, contemplative traditions in which there were, was a threefold distinction between uh, contemplation, meditation, and what was called lexio, or divine reading. You know, um, and um, contemplatio, contemplation, is closer to what we mean by meditation. The Asian word that we probably translate to the extent that we do it consciously uh, is bhavana, which means something like cultivation. Cultivation of the spirit, we might say, or cultivation of our being. And it includes all sorts of dimensions, and it would include ethical, ethical paying attention to the ethical dimension, not just sitting quietly. So meditation is a little confusing as a term because there's actually not anything that really is the counterpart to it in the Asian traditions. That, that being said, it also has the connotations in English. In the, in the um, medieval framework, meditation was you would take a theme and you would focus on it and kind of stay with it for a while. We still use that in English. We say, I'll meditate on that. That's that, that meaning, which is not the same as what we think of as meditation. So it can be confusing. And our meditation is much closer to contemplation in the Jewish and Christian frameworks. That being said, there's, um, there are a lot of Buddhist meditations where one directly tries to uh, connect with certain energies 
as opposed to, we would call them more active forms of contemplation or meditation, as opposed to more receptive modes. The more active, so the loving kindness or metta practice is an example. There, we're not just sitting back and letting whatever happens happen. We're actually deliberately going into the energy of the heart and trying to, uh, trying to develop it. Yeah, and there are a lot of practices which are quite similar. We deliberately invoke certain energies or certain potentials and, and cultivate them. So that's, that sounds close to what you're meaning by contemplation? It does. Yeah. Yeah, so, so they're both. The, the mindfulness practice is more receptive. So they're both receptive and active types of, um, we would say, medita- I'll use the word meditation even though I just criticized the use of it. <laughs> so thank you. It'd be interesting to have more of those perspectives another time. Yeah, thank you. Good. So thanks for your patience. We're staying a little bit over. Let's just finish with uh, 30 seconds or so. And before, does that set, would, uh, would you like more on this? Or I was thinking of going to that theme of how do we work skillfully with concepts and views and interpretations. Do you feel ready to do, go that, or do you want more on the second and third sense, so on the unconscious and the existential realities? The former. Huh? The former. How many of you would like, how do we work skillfully with concepts and views and interpretations? How many of you would like more on the unconscious? Okay, maybe I'll do the first, but I'll bring in a little bit of the second. <laughs> okay. okay, so I'll... I'll and I think I, 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 I listened to my talk from last time, and I, I heard that I, uh, I, I've thought of giving a handout that, you know, on how to go down the ladder. I think I'll plan for that for next, next time. So I'll do a handout, and I'll focus especially on, okay, we've... We have the practice of going down the ladder. How, when we're up the ladder, do we, do we skillfully use what's up there? How do we use thinking skillfully and so forth? Okay. So I'll invite us to continue with this practice. And for right now, just um, reflect on what may have been helpful from the morning and, any, and your intention going forward from, from our morning, for this next week especially. What's your intention? for practice. (coughs) I want to close with the traditional dedication of merit. May our practice be of benefit to ourselves, may it be of benefit to those with whom we're in contact, and may it be a benefit beyond that circle to all beings, ultimately. So, thank you so much for your... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.